Well, today marks the ninth anniversary of September 11th, 2001. I'm sure, like many of you, remember very vividly where you were when you got the news of what had happened that day. And we had impressed upon us how quickly life can turn upside down. You know, as we look around the world today, our nation has been involved in war and conflict constantly. And we see the ever-deepening scars of war. We in this room have a special insight and a special understanding. We realize that things will get worse before they get better. We don't have that insight because we figured it out for ourselves. We know that God is the one who calls the weak from the world and has lifted that veil off of our minds so that we're under, able to understand the plain meaning of Scripture. Christ told His disciples that prior to His return, wars and rumors of wars would fill the earth. You know, this past week, I saw a car with a bumper sticker. Two words. Imagine peace. Imagine peace. I saw that bumper sticker as I was on my way up to Raleigh for the Feast of Trumpets. You know, peace is a universal ideal. It's something that everyone wants. And yet, they don't know how to achieve it. In Isaiah 59, verse 8, it's recorded that the way of peace they have not known. There is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. You know, man doesn't know how to achieve it. They yearn for it. They want it. They talk about it. But unfortunately for many, they think of it as an elusive pipe dream, a fairy tale, something that they talk about or tell their children, but they don't have the real expectation of ever seeing it. You know, we here are gathered together on the Sabbath day, a day of rest through the week, a day that foreshadows a 1,000-year time of rest we look forward to that. That time when peace won't be a fairy tale. It will be a reality. And that we will have a hand in bringing peace to pass. We long for the fulfillment of Christ's return, the fulfillment of what this day, the weekly Sabbath, pictures. The fulfillment of 
You know, here we are during the fall festival season between trumpets and atonement. We long for the fulfillment of what these days look forward to. A time when we will rule and reign with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, at His return. We're going to be able to help teach the nations the way of peace. Something that they have sought after, and yet the wrong way. We read there in Isaiah 59, verse 8, that whoever takes that way shall not know peace. For almost 6,000 years, mankind has taken that way, and the result has been they have not known peace. We're going to have a hand and an opportunity to help teach the nations the ways of peace. But if we're going to teach others the way of peace, we must first learn and practice that way of peace ourselves. This afternoon, I would like for us to examine six keys to becoming a peacemaker. You know, real peace is not just the cessation of conflict. Real peace is more than just a a truce where the fighting stops. Real peace involves unity. It involves harmony. Harmony. Let's begin by turning to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, we're going to notice verse 165. Psalm 119, verse 165. We read, Great peace have those who love Your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. You know, as we think about being peacemakers, developing that as part of our character, not just what we know, but what we are from inside. Well, the first key that I want us to look at is avoiding offense. Now, what we read here in Psalm 119, verse 165, is that those who love God's law have great peace. We read something else that nothing causes them to stumble. Now, you know, this verse is not something that we use like ammunition on somebody else. When we've done something and they're upset and they say, you know, I'm really offended, and we whip out the Bible and we point to this Scripture and we say, now see here, Now, this is something that we look at ourselves. If we feel offended, we look at ourselves here and think, you know, what's what's wrong with this picture? Right here we see described that those who love God's law have a great peace. A peace that's so deep, a peace that's so great, that nothing causes them to stumble. That the things that they see the things that others do, the mean looks from others, whatever it is, doesn't cause them to stumble. You know, the reason is that those who love God's law, it's on their mind constantly. 
throughout the day, day in, day out. It's on their mind constantly. And their focus is on God and what He's doing. The fact that He's bringing many sons to glory. And that he, just as He's not finished working with me, He's not finished working with others. And we have peace in that. We're able to let go of whatever the situation is, recognize that God is in charge. And that deep understanding that God really is in charge, that He is intimately involved in our lives, is something that enables us to have great peace. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We'll notice Christ's word to His disciples. Matthew chapter 18. Verse 7. Jesus said, Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. You know, offending others, offending someone, causing offense, is something that God takes very, very seriously. You know, God's approach, Christ didn't say shame on them for being offended. You know, if they hadn't loved my law, they wouldn't have been offended. He, Christ says, woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. You know, that's a part of life. But woe to the one who's responsible for causing the offense. You know, when we think about the attitude and the approach that Christ has and that He's trying to get across right here, we realize that it is very serious business. It's not something to take lightly. That we should be very careful going out of our way, if need be, to make sure that we're not causing offense. You know, sometimes offenses happen, they just happen. You know, we weren't trying to offend someone, and yet we see that they're offended. You know, when we think about this Scripture, how serious that is, it helps us understand that whether we meant to or not, you know, hopefully not, <laughs> that we should go out of our way to rectify the situation to restore it to whole. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll notice Paul's approach on this. <coughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In the context of this chapter, Paul is talking about being sensitive to conscience. He's talking about meats that are offered unto idols. And explaining that, you know, there's only one God. There, there aren't any other gods. And so although uh, some of these uh, meats that they had available there in their markets were, were offered, uh, sacrificed to false gods, Paul said, you know, there is no such thing as another God. There is only one God. And so with that in mind, uh, you may go ahead and partake. But notice what he says. You know, as he's describing this, he's, he mentions that not everybody has this knowledge. 
Not everybody has this understanding. Verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat again meat, lest I make my brother stumble. You know, Paul's saying, I would be willing to give up eating meat if I knew that in doing so, I would, my brother would not uh, be caused to stumble because of me. That that's how serious he took that. Now, as a man who really enjoys a nice steak, <laughs> who looks forward to meat, steak, roast, whatever, you know, I, I understand what Paul's talking about. This is a big deal. You know, he wasn't prepared to give up something that was just convenient. He was really willing to, what we would say, go above and beyond in order to make sure that he was not causing somebody else to stumble. Let's notice in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 32. Paul goes on, he says, Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. In other words, no one. You know, there, there's not a special class of people that Paul uh, didn't mention here. You know, Paul's point is, make sure that you do not give offense. Not just this is the approach that we have to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but that this is the approach that we have both to those inside the church and those outside. Those that God is calling now and those that will have their calling and their opportunity later. That we're to have that approach as a part of our character, that we go out of our way to avoid causing offense. The second key that I would like to focus on, let's turn back to Numbers chapter 15. This principle is found in Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15 and verse 16. We read, One law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. So what we see being described, we see being codified in the law of Scripture, is that we are to be equitable and fair in all of our dealings. We're not to have a double standard. We're to have one standard. One law. You know, we don't have a, a special rules that apply to, you know, those that are from here. A special, you know, a, a special rule that, that we play by and then a special set of rules that applies to everybody else. What's described is one law, one custom. Over in verse 29, you shall have one law for him who sins unintentionally, for him who is native-born among the children of Israel, and for the stranger who dwells among them. You know that they're not to be oppressive in their dealings with others. We're to have one rule. Not double dealing. 
not playing favorites. We know that God is not a respecter of persons. We see that here very clearly in Scripture. And then if we're going to be peacemakers, that this principle has to be a part not just of what we know, but of how we live our lives. One rule, one custom, one law. Not not double-dealing, not playing favorites. Think about all of the injustice that we read about in Scripture. So many of the scandals. And isn't this really a part of it? You know that there's one set of, of rules for those that uh, are or in the know, or, or whatever, there's some special connection. And they have a different set of rules than everybody else. You know what we see described here? The instructions for ancient Israel. These are the same instructions that will be applied throughout all the world during the, day, the time that this day foreshadows. There will be one law. Let's go over to Exodus chapter 22. Exodus chapter 22. <clears throat> we notice in verse 21. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. The they were not, when they were in a position to do so, they were not to mistreat or be harsh to others. That they were instead to remember that they had at one time been on the receiving end of that. Now you think about the difference that that would make in society. Just that Scripture, if that were really applied fully. You know, hazing, which is a problem in our schools and in various institutions... That would stop. That would cease overnight. You know, bullying. You know, too often the approach that we see practiced is that those who endure that mistreatment long for the day when it will be their turn to dish it out. You know, rather than long for the time when they will be able to put an end to it. They long for the time when they will be able to do unto others as was done unto them, plus a little bit extra for interest. And yet the, uh, the approach that God wants us to have is that we're to remember our suffering, the suffering of those who've gone before. And with that memory help be motivated to not be a part of those systems, but instead to be a part of doing things a different way, a different approach. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 17. Therefore, you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. So here the command, the instruction, is also 
tied with fearing God. That as we fear God, as we recognize that God's watching right now, that He can see through roofs and through ceilings, He can see through walls, He can even see what's going on deep inside in our heart, and those thoughts that are running around. And then as we think about that, it affects our actions. You know, if, if my girls are uh, dividing something amongst themselves, if mommy or daddy are there right there, they have a special awareness of our proximity. <laughs> and it affects their approach to dealing with the other. If we're far away, well, we're working on that part. But it's that way between us and God that we should always have that sense of proximity with God. We're deeply aware of the fact that He's watching. He is aware. And that we want Him to be pleased. And as, as we think about that, that it does affect our dealings with others. That we're not tightening the screws. That we're not seeking to get one over on them. That instead we're trying to make sure that we're dealing very fairly. Not just fairly from our perspective, but fairly from God's perspective. With our family, with our employees, with our co-workers, with our boss, with neighbors, whoever. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 13. We'll notice the third key here in Proverbs chapter 13. In verse 10, we read that by pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. The third key for becoming peacemakers is humility. We read here that pride, the opposite of humility, produces nothing but strife. Nothing but strife. You know, how often do we see that played out in the news? Somebody who became filled with pride and it ultimately proved their downfall. You know, pride is something that can blind us. It can keep us from seeing our situation objectively. It's a focus, an undue focus on the self. And it creates nothing but strife and conflict, all sorts of trouble and heartache. Let's turn over to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to notice a little bit about the approach that we are working to build in our lives. Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2, we'll notice in verse 3, we're told to let nothing be done <clears throat> through selfish ambition or conceit, 
But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That as we go about our routine, that we're not just looking out for what's the best for me, but we're also looking out for others. We're also looking out for their interests. What would be good for them as well. We're told that this is the mind that we are to make ours, which was also Christ's mind. You know, the word to make Christ's mind, our mind. That the approach that He had, that that's the approach that we are to have as well. Verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it to be robbery with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You know that that's the mind, that's the approach that we are to make ours. You know, what complete humility. You think about Christ's titles. Christ will return as the Prince of Peace. As we make this mindset described that Christ had, as we make that our mindset, we are preparing to help Jesus Christ in the teaching and administration of peace. That our attitude towards others is one of humility. You know, that Christ was humbled Himself so completely, so fully, without holding anything back. That's the approach that we are to make our own. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, we'll notice one aspect of that humility that we should have. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, the time, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now notice their whole perspective is the opposite of coming at it from humility. They, they didn't ask which one of us is going to serve the most. <laughs> which one of us is going to be on top? Verse 2, Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, their initial attitude was, who's going to be in charge? Which one of us is going to have the greatest office? That way they can smile at their brothers and let them know exactly how important they're going to be. 
And Christ told them, you know, unless you guys have a change of attitude, you're not even going to be there. Because in order to be there, and in order to be a part of that, you have to become converted and have the attitude like this little child. And then whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, humility is tied so closely with being able with being teachable. You think about a little child. It's teachable. They have an attitude of humility. You can work with them. You can teach them. You, you can tell them something and they will believe you. They'll act on it. You know, they don't, they don't argue. There's not a lot of pushback. They will take it to heart. A little child can be guided, can be directed, can be led. And in order for us to be there and have an opportunity to help the world understand how to attain peace, something that right now they can only imagine, that we have to be that teachable, that humble, that easily guided, that easily directed, that it's an essential quality. You know how sweet it is when uh, my girls sometimes they'll, they'll ask a question that they have recognized that this, whatever it is, is beyond them and they need daddy's help. Oh, what a sweet experience. You know, it's one that melts a parent's heart because they're such a joy to work with and guide and direct. And they can, you know, have the answer to their question or get the result that they were hoping for and looking for. You know, that that's the attitude, the approach that we have to make a part of our character. And that as we do so, God is able to guide us and direct us gently. You know, none of us like to be guided with a heavy hand. And when our Father in Heaven begins working with us, He begins guiding us gently, trying to get our attention. And if we don't give Him the attention quickly or easily, He ratchets up the pressure. He doesn't give up and go away. You know, when a, when a parent is trying to get the attention of the child, if the child does not yield the attention quickly, a loving parent is persistent. You know, in Scripture, we see in uh, James chapter 4 and verse 6 that God resists the proud. God resists the proud. You know, certainly the, the relationship that we want to have with our Creator is not one where He is resisting us, but instead one where we are easily guided, easily, gently directed, that we have that humble, teachable, childlike quality toward God's Word. Where we have the relationship with Him that when we cry out that He answers. Not that He's resisting. Let's go to Luke chapter 9. 
Luke chapter 9. Let's notice here in verse, beginning in verse 52. I'm going to notice this passage and think about this in the connection with humility. Beginning in verse 52, this is Christ and His disciples were on their way towards um, Jerusalem. Verse 52, And He sent messengers before His face, and they went. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for Him. But they did not receive Him because His face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. So when they, the village saw that he, wasn't, uh, that he was headed towards Jerusalem, they didn't have room for Him. They uh, turned Him away. Verse 54, And when His disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do You want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Just as Elijah did. You know, here they are all worked up. They're ready. Lord, would you like us to do it? We're ready. We're ready. Would you like us to zap them? Remember how Elijah did? Yeah, we'll give it to them. That'll teach them. <laughs> when word of this gets around, nobody will turn us away. You know, that wasn't the attitude that was pleasing in Christ's sight. Notice what Jesus said, verse 55. But He turned and He rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Christ told His disciples, No, guys, that's not the way we do things. That's not the purpose of the power. That's not the approach that you should have. And they went to another village. You, know, you think about that for just a moment. Here was God in the flesh insulted in this way. No, you can't come in here. And what complete humility... He turned, walked on, and went to the next village. You know that that's the approach of great humility that we need to make a part of our lives. That if we are on the receiving end of insult, that our approach is not, well, I will get you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it back. No, that our approach is following in Christ's example. Moving on. Recognizing. You know, they've got lessons to learn and their Father in Heaven will teach them. And the best thing for me to do right now is get out of the way. Move on. Let's go over to James chapter 1. We'll look at the fourth key. James chapter 1. James chapter 1 and verse 19. 
So then, my beloved brethren, let everyone be swift to hear and slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, the fourth key is that we need to be quick to listen and slow to anger. We're told there that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, scripture tells us that the heart is deceitful above all and desperately wicked. That are of our own, we can't even know it ourselves. You're know, thinking about the, the last scripture that we just read in connection with this. You know, the disciples, their initial approach to this insult, this, you know, being turned away, was the wrath that did not produce the righteousness of God. You know, yet in their mind, they were thinking about precedent and they were thinking about how, yeah, this is biblical and, you know, wrong approach. You know, the heart is deceitful. Our challenge is to be quick to hear, slow to anger, slow to speak. You know, how many problems would that solve? Because what comes naturally is really just the opposite. Something happens, we're quick to act. Those emotions come on like a flood. So quickly. And yet, the principle here in Scripture, we're slow to speak. Not because we're trying to think of the perfect line, but that we are quickly trying to listen, that we have a desire to hear what they say. To hear, really hear and understand things from the other perspective. And as we make that part of us, we will be able to, you know, it's hard to teach something that you can't practice yourself. And as we prepare to teach the world the way of peace, you know, how many, how many situations will we be explaining this exact Scripture? All right, all right, stop, stop, all right. You know, one at a time, one describing and the other listening. And yet, to be able to teach that and instruct in that, we have to practice that now. Let's go over to Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15, let's notice verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A soft answer is one that has the power to turn away wrath. It's like a water faucet. soft answer can turn it off. The wrong answer can open it up wide open. I remember years ago, I was in business and I got a call from an irate client. He was 
yelling and very upset because the previous day he had tried to reach me and had been unable to do so. It was a holy day. So I was unavailable. And the next day, boy, was he mad. He was a powerful man. He was a man used to having his calls returned and his way, whatever he wanted, he was used to having his way. And I explained to him that that was I was in church. And he said, "Yeah, I'm all I'm all you know uh, fine about uh, you know everybody should uh, believe in, in in Christ, but don't let that get in the way of you know whatever." And he just went on and on and on. I prayed about it. I realized, you know, I'm about to lose my my rent money here. <laughs> God gave me a soft answer. It didn't come naturally. But I gave him uh, an answer. And suddenly, it's like the water faucet turned off. Suddenly, he went from being yelling and irate. I was thinking, I'm about to lose him. And suddenly now, you know, a complete change in attitude. We uh, went on to... Uh, be in, in business together for years. Had a great relationship. But it was always vividly impressed in my mind in connection with this Scripture about how a soft answer, everything can hinge on that soft answer. And that answer is not one that comes naturally, not to most people. No, that soft answer, if it's really going to be the right kind of answer, it's an answer that comes from God. That doesn't mean that we compromise on our core principles. That doesn't mean that we don't have values that we stand for without moving, that we hold fast to. But so many times, the key to whether or not the conflict, the tension, the problem explodes like gasoline on a fire, or instead is able to calm down, really comes back to whether or not we're able to provide a soft answer. Let's go over to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, let's notice in verse 17. We're going to see the fifth key. We're to reread in, in verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
know, the fifth key is mercy. Mercy. Forgiveness. That if we are to create peace, to be peacemakers, that we have to be merciful. That we have to forgive. We're told here, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, to live peaceably with all men. You know, that's a tall challenge because not all people are peaceable. You know, it's easy to be at peace when everybody else also has the same goal and the right tools. They know the right keys. They know the right things, the procedures, the ways to resolve conflict. If everybody is being quick to listen and slow to to speak, slow to anger. It's pretty easy to have peace. But our challenge is not live peaceably with all peaceable people and with everybody else. Give it to them. No. As much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. We're told to not avenge ourselves. God says vengeance is His. He will repay. Now you know, when we get our paycheck, you know that God said 10% of that is mine. So we give that to Him. We understand that to keep it for ourselves is stealing. You ever thought about that with regard to vengeance? You know, God says vengeance belongs to Him. If we try to take it, we're, tr- we're stealing something that is rightfully God's. Vengeance belongs to Him. God says He will repay. You know, God's memory doesn't fade. He remembers all the details. You know that our challenge is to get out of the way. To the extent possible, to the extent that lies within us, to be peaceable. To work, actively work to create peace where it does not exist in our lives. And that as we do so, we are becoming peacemakers. And that we run across situations where you know there is a need for vengeance there is a need for it god says that's his prerogative he recognizes the need for it and he will uh, take care of it and he will do so with mercy with patience you know a loving parent never enjoys correcting or disciplining their child. They do it because it's needful for the child, even though they find it very difficult, painful. Let's notice our approach a little bit further over in Matthew chapter 5. 
that God will, will deal with others just like He's dealing with us. With mercy, with patience. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38, Christ is teaching His disciples. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. You know, the approach that they had at that time was the approach similar to what we see around us in society today. That eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, tit for tat, I'm going to get even approach. And Christ said, that's not the approach that my servants should have. An approach where we're always trying to stay even. Maybe add a little bit extra, help the other guy learn the lesson. You know, that's what comes naturally from within, the carnal man. The approach that Christ said that we should have is that we should be willing to be wronged and to take it. That we shouldn't always be focused on what can we do to get even, to even the score. And God is the scorekeeper. Nobody ever gets one over on God. You remember that that a man sows, that shall he also reap? You know, God is the one who brings those things to pass. We need to make sure that the approach that we have is one where we're willing to turn the other cheek, that we're willing to be merciful, that we're willing to forgive. That really doesn't come easily. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, we're going to notice verse 21. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. You know, Peter thought he was really coming up with above and beyond. Seven times? We all think that's kind of funny. Seven times. Because we know the rest of the story. But think about it for a moment. If somebody is wronging you, isn't forgiving them seven times rather difficult? You know, when you've forgiven them the sixth time and they do it again, and then you forgive them that seventh time. Wow, I wish they would just get it. And then it happens again. Christ said up to 70 times seven. You know, I well remember the first time I really heard this Scripture, or I remember hearing it. I was a kid in Bible study. My dad was going through and read these verses. I'd been having a little bit of friction with my brother earlier in the day. 
And so I really perked up with Christ's answer. Seventy times seven. I thought, well, you know, I can just start keeping score. (laughs) Sooner or later, we're going to hit that, you know, 70 times 7. And at this rate, it might not take that long. So on the way home from Bible study, I shared my new plan. (laughs) I wasn't going to have to forgive them forever. The rest of this verse, or these... These verses were brought to my understanding. (laughs) You know, the attitude and the approach that we need to have is the same as the one that we want God to have towards us. You know, how many times do we fall on our knees and ask God for forgiveness? And do we really want Him to pull out the tally sheet and say, you know what, (laughs) you're almost out of chances. No. You know, Christ goes on with the parable. Verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, but he was not able to pay. His master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. And the servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Now you know the king, the master, was doing what was within his right. It was owed to him. It was his due. It was his to demand. And when payment was not able to be made... It was his also to demand that whatever payment does exist be made. Liquidate his assets, throw the family into the jail. Payment will be made. You know, that would have been justice. And yet, we're familiar with the story. The servant fell down and begged for mercy. And mercy was granted. Just like it is for us. You know, the wages of sin is death. That's justice. That's fair. That's the due reward that comes from sin. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What we are under, what we badly need, is mercy from God. And so as we cry out to Him and ask Him for that, we also have to make that our practice towards others. And it's not always easy. Particularly when they keep doing it. And that's where we have to just remind ourselves of the fact that God said, vengeance is His. He will teach the other party the lessons that they need to learn. He will. That's part of His identity. That's part of who He is. And that if we focus on that, we're able to move on. Uh, Sometimes if the other party is continuing to transgress, trespass, 
the relationship can't be, the breach can't be repaired. But we have to turn loose. Turn that part over to God. That for our part, that we are working actively, diligently to make peace. To forgive. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter five. I'm going to notice verse fifteen. Paul says, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. That our approach is not to you know, tit for tat, repay evil for evil, but that our approach is always looking for good, not only for ourselves. You know, that part comes naturally. Looking for good for ourselves in any sort of transaction or relationship, that part comes naturally. The part that we have to work on is also looking for good for the other party. You know, that's called win-win. Not looking for win-lose situations, but looking for situations, things where everybody comes away a winner. Not where one party loses, but that that is to be our attitude and our approach. You know, those that understand these spiritual keys and apply them in their lives reap tremendous results. Those that don't suffer the consequences. It's one of the reasons it's such a privilege that we have had our minds open to understand the plain meaning of Scripture. Because we're able to put these things into practice in our lives and have the fruit that comes from it. You know, it's fruit that's desirable that the whole world would like to have. And yet they don't know how to get it. Because they, at this time, are still blinded by the God of this world. Let's go to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. I'm going to notice in verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good... And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? You know, there are some that think of God's way as a burden. And what could be further from the truth? You know, what does the Lord require of you? Do justly. To love mercy and to walk humbly with God. You know, to love mercy means that not only do we love receiving it, but we also love giving it. 
Not just receiving it from our Father in heaven. Not just receiving it from others. Because, you know, they're supposed to be merciful. But to, to love mercy means that we enjoy it. That we enjoy being able to extend it to others. And then as we do so, you know, we're able to have peace where before it might not have existed. That our Father in heaven, as He looks down, is delighted and pleased. You know, when I deal with my girls and, and there's been a squabble or something, and how sweet it is to see them when they hug and, and, and make up and, and apologize and are merciful to each other. You know, they're able to then put that behind them and go on with joy. And as a parent, it fills your heart with joy to see that. That mercy and forgiveness are essential for peace. Let's go now to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. We're going to notice the sixth key to becoming a peacemaker. In verse 37, Christ had been asked what was the great commandment of the law. Verse 37, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This forms the foundation for Scripture. The law and the prophets are built on this foundation. You know, we've been talking about keys to being a peacemaker. The sixth key is the key of love. It is the key that makes the others possible. You know, the first three keys that we looked at, avoid causing offense, being equitable and fair in our dealings with others, being filled with humility. You know, those are keys that help us avoid being the problem. Those keys, as we apply them in our lives, help us avoid being the one who is the cause of conflict. You know, being swift to hear and slow to anger. Being filled with mercy and applying mercy. Those are how we deal with others. But what makes it all work? What makes it all possible? The glue that holds it all together is this foundation of love. that we avoid causing offense, that we take that very, very seriously, that we're willing to go the extra mile to go above and beyond to rectify it when we've inadvertently caused it, that we're not callous and we don't say, you know, that's their problem. They need to just 
grow, overcome, deal with it, get over it. That that's not our approach. Why? Because we love our neighbor as ourself. That we're fair in our dealings with others, that we don't have a double standard for those that aren't from around here. We don't have a double standard. Why? Because we love our neighbor as ourself. You know, as we love our neighbor as ourself, it's hard to be filled with pride. You know, that love that we are supposed to have as the great commandment to love God with all our heart, with all our being, and to love those that are made in His image like we love ourselves. That's what makes it all possible to extend mercy even when our feelings are involved and they've done it before and probably will do it again. That we are quick to listen. That we are slow to speak. Why? Because, again, we are motivated by love. We understand that these are the keys that make it possible to attain peace. Peace does not start at a national level. Our world is filled with conflict. And the solutions for peace that man pursues don't produce peace. You know, the seeds for the next conflict are sown in the, in the truce of the one before. It sets the foundation for the next round because they don't understand the keys and the principles from Scripture. Peace doesn't start at the national level. Peace begins at the individual level. It begins with the self. Peace is not something that starts with others. Peace in our lives starts with us, with me. If we start with the self, then we're able to build peace in our relationships with our family, with those that we work with, with those that we, uh, in our neighborhood, our, our neighbors. You know, peace is not something that comes naturally to the carnal man. It's not something that by human nature is easy to achieve. By human nature, it's impossible. We have almost a 6,000 year track record of, of establishing that very clearly. With human nature, it's impossible. But with God, it's help. It is possible. You know, brethren, as we look around us at society and the scars of war and the ongoing conflicts, we know that things will get worse before they get better. We long for the time when what this day, the Sabbath day foreshadows, will be a reality. We will have that millennial peace. And that we will be involved 
with administering peace, with teaching the way of peace. And at that time, we will be able to teach and they will actually understand. You know, right now, sometimes we try to teach someone that we love and care about and they don't understand. And yet we long for the time when we will be able to teach and they will understand and will be able to apply. And as we prepare for that, we have to make this not something that we just know about, but something that has become part of us because we have changed. Because we have overcome. Because we have built and practiced in our lives so that it is part of our character to be a peacemaker. Remember Christ's words in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. 